Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. The makers of Campbell's Duke present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Tonight again, our scene is America. America at the turn of the century, in the days that saw the rise, the reign, and the decline of the Magnificent Ambersons. The book was a bestseller, but the Magnificent Ambersons is something better than that, better than a bestseller that still sells. It lives on as the truest, cruelest picture of the growth of the Middle West and the liveliest portrait left to us of the people who made it grow. It's better than a good book. It's Booth Tarkington's best. And we'll do our best fight on the radio tonight, and luckily, we have with us a great American actor to help. An actor who, in the living theater and in motion pictures, has created a notable gallery of American portraits ranging from Ring Lardner's Elma the Great to Sinclair Lewis's Dodsworth. A gallery which includes the simplest of American mortals, and even two presidents, the legendary chief executive of Gabriel over the White House, and Mr. Abraham Lincoln himself. You've guessed his name. It's Walter Houston. But before Booth Tarkington's magnificent Anderson, here's Ernest Chappell with a message of interest from our sponsors. Thank you, Orson Welles. You know, if through some circumstance or other, people could have only one suit, and if the choice of that one suit were put to popular vote, the chances are most people would test their ballots in favor of Campbell's tomato suit. You see, Campbell's tomato is the suit people buy and enjoy more than any other. Now, why is this so? Well, there are many reasons, of course, why people turn to Campbell's tomato soup time and time again, why it appeals alike to young and old, why people never seem to tire of it. But the main reason can be summed up in one word, flavor. Just about everybody has a keen liking for its rich tomato flavor. The tang and liveliness of that flavor never fails to coax our appetite. We continue to enjoy it as we eat spoonful after spoonful, and we have a pleasant feeling of deep well-being as we finish the last full-flavored drop. I wouldn't bright glowing, fragrant platefuls of this favorite soup add special enjoyment to your dinner tomorrow night? Then don't you want to put on your grocery list tomorrow? Campbell's Tomato Soup. And now, the magnificent Aberton with Walter Houston and Orson Welles. Dear Miss Anderson, when I call upon you this afternoon, to express my regret for last night's misfortune. I was informed by your butler that he did not desire to see me. You seem to care a great deal for this vile, Miss Anderson. If I promise never to break another one, may I not hope that you will relent and consent to receive in person the apology of your very concise and devoted admirer, Mr. Morton. To Miss Anderson, Anderson Mansion, 
Anderson Boulevard. Anderson Edition. You heard that word Anderson a lot in those days. In that town. Everybody knew the Andersons, and it was quite unnecessary for the young man to address his letter so carefully. The magnificence of the Andersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their midland town spread and darken into a city. Around 1800, Major Anderson had bought 200 acres of land at the end of National Avenue. Through this track, he had built broad streets and cross streets, paved them with cedar blocks, and curved them with stone. He'd set up fountains here and there in a symmetrical interval, placed cast iron statues painted white. And all this art showed a profit from the start. The lots had sold well, and there was a rush to build in the new addition. Its main thoroughfare was called Amberson Boulevard, and here now stood the new Amberson Mansion, which was the pride of the town. Yes, sir, $60,000 for the woodwork alone. And hot and cold water upstairs and down. But they got a ballroom there that takes up the whole third story. And a glass dome, green glass it is. Way up in the air, and arches, and turrets, and one of them new stone porches. They call it a porch cochet. Well, sure, I guess the president of the United States would be tickled to swap the White House for the new Amazon mansion, if the major gives the chance. Yes, sir. By the almighty dollar, you bet the sweet life the major wouldn't. Now, of these Ambersons, at the time this story begins, there were three. The old major and his two children, Fred and Isabel. Of Fred, it was generally understood that one day he would go into politics. Kind of a good thing to have an Anderson in Congress. Makes it pleasant when the family goes traveling. Meanwhile, he was seen every afternoon on National Avenue, perched high on the seat of the newest and fanciest rig in town, driving a pair of dashing bays with great gesturing and waving of his skin-tight lemon gloves. Of Isabel, it was known that she'd been to a young lady's school in the East and later to a finishing school in Paris. But now I'm back. That's for good this time, I guess. And it's nice to be home. Home being the Amberson Mansion on Amberson Boulevard, of which Isabel Amberson was now the hostess. Well, during those days, people had time for things. Time to gossip. Time for a lot of things. They even had time to dance square dances, quadrilles and lances, the raquettes and shotishes and pokers and such whims as the Portland fancy. All gone now. Gone like the all-day picnics in the woods and like that prettiest of all vanished customs, the serenade. Of a summer night, young men would bring an orchestra under a pretty girl's window, and blue top, fiddle, cello, cornet, and bass viol would presently release their melodies to the dulcet stars. Indeed, it was at one of these serenades that an event occurred which would have a profound influence on the fate of the Andersons. Eugene Morgan, it's too bad. Like me, boy in town, he was, and not really given to drink, just celebrating. Stepped right through the bass viol, he did. Made matchwood of it. Too bad it had to be right under Miss Isabel's window, and right at this time, too. When Eugene Morgan called the next day to apologize, Isabel refused to see him. It was then that he wrote her that letter, and three weeks later, Major Anderson announced the marriage of his daughter to one of the town's leading young men of business, Wilbur Minifer. No breaker of base files or of hearts. No serenader at all. Wilbur Minifer. Well, she'll be a good wife to Wilbur. And they'll have the worst spoiled lot of children this town will ever see. Well, how on earth do you make that out? She couldn't love Wilbur, could she? Well, it'll all go to her children, and she'll ruin them. The prophet has proved to be mistaken in a single detail only. Wilbur and Isabel did not have children. They had only one child. At the age of nine, it pains me more than any man to admit, George Amberson Minister, the major's one grandchild, was a princely terror. With his long brown curls and his silk sash and lace collar in which his mother dressed him, he was dreaded not only in Anderson Edition, but in other quarters through which he galloped daily on his white pony. Oh, look at the girls 
It's more than some last song. First time you've ever seen it. Oh, I'm sorry. How do you do? You might take her up to the dancing doors. I think you've pretty well done your duty here. Be delighted. Delighted. What's the name, anyone? Morgan. Oh, it's so funny, Miss. Everybody else's name, all with it. What's the rest of it? Lucy. Lucy, a funny name, too? Oh, Lucy's very much all right. Thanks about letting my name be Lucy. As George conducted his partner to the ballroom, their progress was slow, and to George's mind it did not lack stateliness. How could it? Musicians hired especially for him were sitting in a grove of palms in the hall and now tenderly playing for his pleasure. Dozens and scores of flowers had been brought to life and tended to this hour that they might sweeten the air for him while they died. It is to be doubted if anybody ever felt more illustrious or more negligently grand than George Amberson Minnesota felt at this party. Mr. Minnesota? Yes? What are you studying at college? A lot of useless stuff. Oh, why don't you study the useful stuff? What do you mean, useful? It's something you use later in your business or profession. Well, I don't expect to go into any business or profession. Well, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? A yachtsman. At that same moment, in a small room set apart for the smokers on the second floor of the Anderson Mansion, two old friends were engaged in conversation. One was the Honorable Fred Anderson. The other was the gentleman whom George Anderson Minifer had classified some minutes earlier as a queer-looking duck. Morgan, you haven't changed at all. What did you expect, Fred? Twenty years since you left. Makes some difference in faces, twenty years, but not in behavior, I guess. If you remember, Fred, that my own behavior began to be different about that long ago. Quite suddenly. Yeah. Been uh, stepping in any base piles lately, Gene? <laughs> Isabel, no, you Yes, I just saw Where's Wilbur? I, I didn't see him. Well, Isabel's husband never was one for parties, you know, and he hasn't been so well lately. He's probably gone home already. Gene, life's an odd thing if we look back, isn't it? Yes, it's probably going to be odder still if we should look forward. Probably. However, I still dance like an Indian. Don't you? No, I leave that to my nephew, George. He does the dancing for the family. <laughs> Uh, tell me, what do people in this town think about uh, young George, generally? Well, uh, uh, a lot of people that are glad to express their opinions about him, uh, quite strongly. Yes? What's the matter with it, Fred? Well, too much Amberson, I suppose, for one thing. And for another, Isabel just fell down and worshipped him from the day he was born. I don't see how she doesn't see the truth about that boy of hers. She thinks he's a little tin god on wheels. I tell you, Jean, she actually sits and worships him. You can hear it in her voice when she speaks to him. You can see it in her eyes when she looks at him. My heavens, I often wonder what does she see when she looks at him. Well, she sees something that we don't see. What? An angel. Uh, tell me, Jean, when you met George tonight, uh, did you see an angel? No, no. All I saw was a remarkably good-looking fool boy with the pride of Satan and a set of nice new drawing room manners. <laughs> no, Fred. Mothers see the angel in us because the angel is there. Mothers are always right. Yes, I know what you mean, Jean. You mean that George's mother is always right. I'm afraid she's always been. She was long once, old fellow. At least so it seemed to me. No. No, she... Oh, goodbye, Fred. I'm, I'm going to dance. Oh, well, Isabel, does that surprise you? Well, it uh, <clears throat> startles me a little. You're jumping up like that to go and dance with Isabel. 
20 years seems to have passed, but have they? My heavens, old times starting all over. Old times? Not a bit. <laughs> there aren't any old times. When times are gone, they're not old, they're dead. There aren't any times. Oh. Now, that for a bit of freshness. What was? Oh, that queer-looking duck dancing with my mother. See, they're waving his hand at me like that. I don't know. I'm from Adam. You don't need to. He wasn't waving his hand to you. He meant me. I'm going to dance with him pretty soon. Same. Who is he? The queer-looking duck. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose he's some old widower. Yes, he's a widower. Oh, I should have told you before. He's my father. Oh, if I'd known he was your father, I wouldn't have made fun of him. I'm sorry. Oh, you know I don't mind your being such a lofty person at all. I think it's ever so interesting. But Papa's a great man. Is he? Well, let's hope so, I'm sure. I'm just beginning to understand. Understand what? What it means to be a real Anderson in this town. Papa told me something about it before we came, but I see he didn't say half enough. Did your father say he knew the family before he left here? I don't think he meant to boast of it. He spoke of it quite calmly. You'll excuse me, I, I really must be going now. Hey, wait a minute. Wait. What are you going to do after 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? It's a whole lot of things. Every minute, don't I? All right, just know it's fine for slang. I'll come to you in the cutter at 10 minutes after 2. But I can't possibly go. If you don't, I'm going to sit in the cutter in front of your gate all afternoon. If you try to go out with anybody else, he's got to whip me before he gets you. If you think I'm not in earnest, you're at liberty to make quite a big experiment. I don't think I've often had so large a compliment as that. Especially on such short notice. And yet, I don't think I'll go with you. You'll be ready at 10 minutes after 2. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Yes, I will. Isabel! Isabel! I don't think automobiling is quite your husband's speed anyway, Isabel. Well, let's get started. You sure you're not scared? Of course not. You probably have to walk home with the exercise of the good Don't you believe him. Up you go, Isabel. I don't care what you say. I still think it's thrilling. Honey, here we go. You know what? He tells me the chafing dish of his travels 10 miles an hour. Next year, we expect to do 18. By then, there'll be a law forbidding the sale of automobiles. The way there is with the steel weapons. I'm not anymore with the wind behind us. And I do hate to go back. So pretty out here in the country. Yeah. That is nice. Is this all yours? The Andersons, I mean, all this land? Beautiful. Yeah, it, it used to be. It's getting all too much built up now. The way it used to be, it was like a gentleman's country estate. It's where we ought to keep it. They let these people take too many liberties. <laughs> what are you laughing at now? Oh, nothing. For heaven's sake. What? Well, look over there, down the road. It's Papa. He's having trouble with the machine. <laughs> what I tell you about those old sewing machines? They're not old sewing machines. I wish you don't say things like that. Well, you're not going to pass them and just leave them stranded there. Well, come back, take them out to show them the horses that belong on the road, not sewing machines. Get up, Tender. Oh, George, be careful. Get please. up. 
This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of the magnificent Amberson. But before we learn more about the ways and the ultimate destiny of this extraordinary Amberson family, I'd like to say just a word about a custom prevailing in some American families, perhaps in your family. No doubt, many of the soups you serve and enjoy in your home are Campbell's soups. But perhaps there are one or two kinds of soup you still make yourself. The reason may be, uh, well, habit for one thing, or perhaps it's the understandable pride you take in your good home cooking. If this is true in your case, then believe me, we honor it and you sincerely. But because I'm sure you'll agree that making soup does lengthen your kitchen hours, lengthen them as most women feel needlessly, I'd like to invite you, if you haven't already done so, to try just once these soups as Campbell's make them. Try them and compare them with the product of your own kettle, soup for soup. If you'll do that, I earnestly believe you'll appreciate their fine, home-like flavors so much that you let Campbell's make all your soups. You see, we make these soups for many of your friends, so naturally, we'd like to make them for you, too. Now we resume our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the magnificent Ambersons, starring Orson Welles and Walter Houston. Even after the turn of the century in that Midland town, it seemed impossible to doubt that the Ambersons were entrenched in their nobility behind polished and glittering barriers which were as solid as they were brilliant and would last forever. And to those fervent souls who continued to hope that the youngest of the Ambersons, George Amberson Minifer, would soon get his comeuppance, the following year, I'm afraid, brought little comfort or the next. But in his last year's college, three things occurred to upset the even tenor of George Anderson Minifer's life. Wilbur Minifer, beloved husband of Isabel Anderson Minifer and father of George Anderson Minifer, died at his home last night after a brief illness. Wilson Minifer. Quiet, man. Town will hardly know he's gone. That is the first thing. His father's death. Second. Certain changes in the Midland town where he lived. Perplexing at first, then irritating. Every time you came home for the holidays, you saw new things. New faces at the dances. Riffraff, people whose names you never heard of. The town itself was less and less familiar. Even in Amberson Edition, there was drastic and tragic change. The first owners of the big houses sold them or rented them to boarding house keepers. Cheaper tenants took their places. Rents were lower and lower, the houses shabbier and shabbier. And not even the Ambersons themselves seemed able to stem the tide. And third, third, there was a certain subject upon which George and Lucy Morgan found it impossible to agree. Oh, Lucy, when are you going to marry me? Oh, nothing. Why not? You're too young. Is that the only reason? Oh, I don't know, George. Everything... Everything... What about everything? Well, everything is so... Unsettled. You are the queerest girl. Well, what's unsettled? Oh, for one thing, you haven't settled on anything to do. At least if you have, you've never spoken of it. What are you going to do, George? Well, I... I tell you, I expect to lead an honorable life. 
Now that my father's dead, that sort of makes me the head of the family. I'm not afraid. You don't really mean you had any regular business or profession at all? Certainly do not. Obviously. Well, of course, it's your father's influence that makes you think I ought to do something, is that it? Who never once told him to him about it. Never. But you know, without talking to him, that's the way he does feel about it. Do you think I'd be much of a man if I let another man dictate to me my own way of life? Well, George, who is dictating life? I don't believe in the whole world washing dishes and selling potatoes and frying law cases. I dare say I don't care anymore for your father's ideals than he does for mine. So if your father would just mind his own business... Take me home, George. Please, take me home at once. If that's the way you want it, all right. Well, all right, that's the way you want it. That's the way you want it. Get up, Pandana. Get up. A little uh, brandy, Dean? No, thanks. How about you, George? Thanks. Oh, it's too bad that Lucy couldn't be here tonight. I do hope it's nothing serious, Eugene. Just a headache. She asked me to excuse her this time. Maybe you'll take her out driving tomorrow, George. That'll do her good. Maybe. Yeah, you know, Jean, I heard the other day there's another automobile firm opened up here in town. Oh, I'm bound to have competition. That's part of the game, isn't it, Eugene? Of course. Shows business is good. Maybe they'll drive you out of it. Or else the two of them will drive all the rest of us off the street. <laughs> no, it's always the best. We'll just extend the street. Oh, so you see how simple it is? Thanks. <laughs> It isn't the distance from the center of the town that the time takes to get there. Automobiles will change all that. You really believe, Eugene, that automobiles are going to change the pace of the land? Yeah, they're already doing it. And it can't be stopped. No, automobiles? Automobiles are, are a useless nuisance. What did you say, George? Well, I, I said all automobiles were, were a nuisance. They'll never amount to anything but a nuisance. They never had no business to be invented. You forget, George, that Mr. Morgan makes them and also did his share in inventing them. If you weren't so thoughtless, he might think you rather offensive. Well, that would be too bad. I don't think I could survive that. George. Well, I'm not so sure that George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. That is, in spiritual civilization. It may be that they will not add to the beauty of the world, nor to the life of men's souls. Maybe that George is right, and that the spiritual alteration will be bad for us. Perhaps in 10 or 20 years from now, if we can see the inward change in men by that time, I shouldn't be able to defend the gasoline engine. But would have to agree with George that automobiles had no business to be invented. Well, Fred, I'm afraid it's getting late, and I have an appointment with my foreman. So I better go along. Oh, but Jean. Eugene. No, good night. Uh, don't bother to take me to the door. I'll find my way out. Good night, Eugene. Yes, uh, good night, Jean. Good night. George, dear. What did you mean? That's just what I said. You hurt him, George. He didn't sound very hurt to me. He sounded pretty cheerful, if you ask me. Why don't you think he was hurt? I know him. He must be. Well, I don't care much what Mr. Morgan thinks. Suppose he's trying to borrow money from you, Uncle Fred. That automobile factory system. No, George. I think Eugene Morgan's perfectly able to finance his own inventions these days. George, what made you say that? Well, he strikes me as that sort of a man, that's all. Anyway, I want to know what he's hanging around here for. Anyway. George, Mr. Morgan's an old friend. By Jove, George, you are a puzzle. In what way, I'd like to know? Well, 
It's a new style of courting a pretty girl for a fellow to go deliberately out of his way to try and make an enemy of her father. That's a new way to win a woman, that is. Is there anything wrong, Isabel? You've been so quiet all afternoon. Nothing, Jim. This, this, this is weather. The end of summer. It's been a very happy summer for me. A few more weeks, you'll be gone. There'll be other summers, Isabel. Time changes things, Jim. And once they're changed, you can't bring them back. Things are like smoke. You know how a wreath of smoke goes up from the chimney? You see it getting thinner and thinner. And then in such a little while, it, it isn't there at all. Nothing is left but the sky. And the sky keeps on being just the same forever. Things won't change for you, Isabel. You'll always have me and George. It's George that's troubling me, Eugene. Why doesn't he like you? He doesn't have any reason. He says so himself. Well, boys can't help their likes and dislikes, Isabel. I think perhaps he sensed from the first that I cared a great deal about you. Even when I was so careful not even to show you how immensely I did care. I mean, I can't believe that. Well, someday he'll have to know how we feel about each other, and I think it should it should be from you that he learned that. Oh, it's only fair to George. Much better that he should hear it from from you than from someone else through gossip me. Oh, I know. I, I know you're right, Eugene. And I will tell him. I tried to tell him last night, only... Oh, Eugene, it's so hard. Let me wait until just before he goes back to school. No, no, sooner, Isabel. Sooner, for all our sakes, sooner. But it's only such a few days till he leaves. Surely a few days can't make any difference. Gracious, Georgie, what's up? I've got to talk to you. Say, what's happened to your face? Oh, forget about that. I've just been out of sight. I've heard what people are saying. Saying about what? For heaven's sake, if you're going to talk, people here. The whole town's talking about my mother and that man Morgan. They say my mother is going to marry him. And that proves she was too fond of him before my father died. Everybody in town knows about it but me. Heavens, is that what you're so excited about? Why do you listen to stuff like that? I'm glad I did listen. I have a right to know. Did you know it? Did you? Georgie, you can be sure there's been more gossip in this place about the Amberson family than any other family. You see, the more prominent you are, the more gossip there is about you. And the more people would like to pull you down. But they can't do it as long as you refuse to listen. The minute you notice it, it's got you. Is that all you've got to say? It's about all there is to say, Georgie. There's nothing to be done about it. You propose to sit here and let this... This riffraff bandy my mother's good name about it. Is that what you propose to do? Didn't you understand me when I told you that people are saying my mother means to marry this man? I understood and you. And you think it's such a such an unspeakable marriage to place it as make people believe they've been wrong and say... You know what they say? I don't believe it would. There'd be more badness in the bad mouths and more silliness in the silly mouths. But it wouldn't hurt Isabella and Eugene if they decided to marry. Good heavens, you see them so calmly. Why shouldn't they marry if they want to with their own affairs? Why couldn't... Why should I? I don't see anything precisely monstrous about two people getting married when they're both free and care about each other. What's the matter with marrying? It would be monstrous. Monstrous, even if this horrible scandal hadn't happened, but now in the face of this. 
Oh, you can sit there. Even speak of it. It's your own sister. For heaven's sake, don't be so theatrical. Come back here. What is it? Don't you speak to your mother about this. I don't intend to, but I'm going to do something about it. You can be sure of that. I'm going to do something about it. You feel I don't. Oh, it's you, George. How do you do? Uh, your mother expects to go driving with me, I believe. Would you be so kind as to send word to her that I'm here? No. I beg your pardon, I said... I heard you, Mr. Morgan. Said you had an engagement with my mother. I told you no. Well, just what is the difficulty? My mother will have no interest in knowing that you came for today or any other day. I'm afraid I don't understand. I doubt if I can make it much plainer, but... Christ. You're not wanted in this house, Mr. Morgan, or at any other time. Perhaps you understand. This. Fred, we'll bring this to you. Dear Isabel, he is waiting while I write. He and I have talked things over. And before he gives this to you, he will tell you what has happened. I should have been better prepared for what took place today. I ought to have known it was coming. A week ago, I thought the time had come when I could ask you to marry me. And you were dear enough to tell me. Sometime, it might come to that. Well, you and I, left to ourselves wouldn't pay much attention to things like science and talk. But now we're faced with not the slander of our own fear of it, because we haven't any, but someone else's fear of it, your son's. And that frightens me. Let me explain a little. I don't think he'll change. At 21 or 22... So many things appear solemn, permanent, and terrible, which forty sees are nothing but disappearing miasma. Forty can't tell twenty about this. That's the picture. Twenty can only find out by getting to be forty. And so we come to this, dear. Will you live your life your own way or George's way? Dear, it breaks my heart for you. But what you have to oppose now in your son is the history of your own selfless and perfect motherhood. Are you strong enough, Isabel? Can you make the fight? I promise you that if you will take heart for it, you will find so quickly that it has all amounted to nothing. You shall have happiness. And in a little while... Only heaven. I'm saying too much for wisdom, my dear. But, oh, my dear, won't you be strong? Such a little short strength it would need. Don't strike my life down twice, dear. This time, I've not deserted. Eugene. Read it, dear. 
Yes, Mother, I did. All of it? Certainly. Simply the most offensive piece of writing that I've ever held in my hand. But, George, I thought... Don't you I really thought... think this was a pretty insulting letter for that man to be asking you to hand your son? Oh, no. No, you can see how fair he means to be. Fair? Do you suppose it ever occurs to him that I'm doing my simple duty? That I'm doing what my father would do if he were alive? He's got my mother's name bandied up and down the streets of this town until I... I can't step in those streets without wondering what every soul I meet is thinking of me and my family. And now he wants you to marry him so that every gossip in town will say, There, what did I tell you? I guess that proves it's true. George, it isn't true. Is it fair for him to want you to throw away your good name just to please him? That's all he asks of you. And to, to quit being my mother? Do you think I can believe you really carefully? Don't. You're my mother. You're an ambassador. I, I believe you're too proud to care for a man who could write such a letter as that. Well, what are you going to do about it, Mother? I have been out the mailbox, darling. Is a letter I've written to Jean, and we'll have it in the morning. I think it is a little better for me to write you like this, instead of waiting until you wake up and then telling you, because I'm foolish and might cry again, and I took a vow once. Long ago that you should never see me cry. Not that I feel like crying when we talk things over tomorrow. Don't fear. By that time, I'll be all right and fine, as you say so often. I think what makes me most ready to cry now is the thought of the terrible suffering in your poor face and the unhappy knowledge that it is. I, your mother, who put it there, it shall never come again. I love you better than anything and everything else on earth. And Eugene was right. I know you couldn't change about this. So I've written him just about what I think you would like me to. Though I told him I would always be fond of him. And always be his best friend. And I hope his dearest friend. He'll understand about not seeing him. He'll understand that. Though I didn't say it in so many words. We mustn't trouble about that. Eugene will understand. Good night, my darling. My beloved. You mustn't be troubled. I think I shouldn't mind anything very much so long as I have you all to myself, people say, to make up for your long years away from me, college. We'll talk of what's best to do in the morning, shan't we? And for all this pain, you'll forgive your loving and devoted mother, Isabel. Three weeks later, George and his mother went abroad. 
Isabel never returned. Nearly two years later, a small item tucked away in one of the back sheets of a morning paper announced the death in Paris of a Mrs. Isabel Amberson minister. That's all there was. And there were only a few people left in the Midland town to whom either name, Minifer or Amberson, meant anything. Some weeks later, George returned only to learn from his Uncle Fred what couldn't be kept secret any longer. The Amberson estate was gone. What with extravagances, taxes, and the new order of things, suddenly there was nothing. Well, here we are, nephew George. All that's left of the Ambersons. Two gentlemen of elegant appearance in a state of bustitude. A few years ago, we wouldn't have thought of him. That's how it is. Life and money. They're like loose quicksilver in a nest of cracks. When they're gone, we can't tell where or what the devil we did with them. What are you going to do, Uncle Fred? Oh, don't worry about me in this new world. I'll be contented with just surviving... I get a consulship somewhere. An ex-congressman can always be pretty sure of getting some such job. I live pleasantly enough with a pitcher of ice under a palm tree and native folk to wait on me. What about you, George? What will you do? The night George saw his uncle off, he walked homeward slowly through what appeared to be strange streets in a strange city. For the town was growing and changing as it had never grown and changed before. It was heaving up in the middle incredibly. And as it heaved and spread, it dissolved itself and darkened its sky. From day to day, from week to week, Great new industries were springing up, steel and oil, and this new, all-conquering thing, the automobile. Strange people swarmed about him, obliterating, destroying every trace of the magnificence that once was Amberson, destroying with it the last of the Ambersons, George Amberson Minister. The city rolled over its heart and buried it, as the city had rolled over Amberson buried them for the last vestige. A thing had happened. A thing which years ago had been the eagerest hope of many. The hope of many good citizens had finally come to pass. But not one of them was there to see it. George Anderson Minister got his comeuppance. He got it three times filled and running over. Later, he walked down Amberson Boulevard, now known as Kent Street, and filled with second-rate shops and cheap boarding houses, and climbed the stairs of the old house for the last time. A terrible loneliness assailed him. He opened the door softly into Isabel's room, as still as it had been. Tomorrow, everything would be gone, and soon after that, the very space which tonight was still her room would be cut into new shapes by new walls and floors and ceilings. Yet, Isabel's room would always live. For it couldn't die out of George's memory. And whatever remains of that old, 
high-handed arrogance was still within him, he did penance for his deepest sin that night. And it may be to this day, some impressionable, overworked woman in a kitchenette, after turning out the light, will seem to see a young man kneeling in the darkness, clutching at the covers of a shadowy bed. And it may seem to her that she hears a faint cry over and over. Mother. Mother, forgive me. Mother. Mother, forgive me. You must have guessed by now who George Anderson Minifer was. Take my word for it, please, that the George Anderson Minifer who was is no more. Papa. Why, Lucy, what brings you downtown this morning? I tried to get you at one of the factories, but no one could locate you. I wanted to talk to you, Papa. Are you very busy? I'm never too busy to talk to you, Lucy. Is something wrong? Yes, Papa, there is something wrong. It's George. George? You mean... Yes, Papa. George Minifer. Well? He's been hurt. Badly hurt. He's in the city hospital. Both his legs broken. It's too bad. He was run down by an automobile. An automobile? George Anderson Minifer. Run down by an automobile. Papa, do you know what he's been doing the past two years? No, no, and I couldn't honestly say, Lucy, that I'm very interested. He's been working with explosives at the Acres Chemical Company. A dangerous job. The most dangerous job there is. No, I never thought he lacked nerve, Lucy. You don't understand, Papa. No one else could take the job. He needed work so badly he took it, and, and Papa, he's made good. He's changed. He's not the old George at all. And now this has happened to him. Well... I want you to go to see him. No, Lucy. After all, you can't expect me to have any particular affection for that young man. I'm sure that Isabel... Isabel. Isabel's been dead three years. Three years. And if it hadn't been for him, she might... She might... It's what she would want you to do, Papa. You know that. She'd want you to be kind. He'd want you to come with me to the hospital. He's lonely, Papa. His heart's broken. He needs us. We can help him. You could do so much for him, and I... I could... Well, Papa, what are you going to do? Isabel, my dear... Up there in that small, bare hospital room this afternoon, you were by my side. Do you remember, Isabel, that last day we were together? You said that things in our lives were like smoke, and time like the sky that which the smoke vanishes. And I told you that for us, things did not change like that, and we would always be together. You were with me when I walked into that room where your son was lying. With Lucy sitting beside him. He felt you too. He lifted his hand in a queer gesture, half forbidden, half imploring. You come, he said. You must have thought my mother wanted you to come, so that I could ask you to forgive me. 
And as he held my hand in his, if you could have seen Lucy's face at that moment, dear Isabel, she was radiant. But for me, another radiance filled the room. For then I knew that I had been true to you at last, my true love. And that through me, you had brought your boy under shelter again. concludes our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the magnificent Amberson, starring Walter Houston and Orson Welles. In just a moment, Mr. Welles will return to our microphone for a brief interview with Mr. Houston. Meanwhile, I'd like to use that moment, if I may, to point out how perfectly Campbell's tomato soup meets the question of what soup to serve, no matter what the occasion. Don't you agree? When you have guests for dinner, for instance, don't you most frequently turn to Campbell's tomato soup? No doubt you often add milk instead of water to make a delicious cream of tomato. Served that way, it has a richness and a luxurious smoothness that fit in delightfully with a gay party mood. It's especially enjoyable, too, when your household is gathered together for a quiet family meal. If yours is a small family and just you two sit down to supper, I'm sure the soup you often choose is Campbell's tomato soup. Yes, it's certainly the soup people enjoy again and again and never seem to tire of. Why don't you and your family enjoy Campbell's tomato soup tomorrow? And now, here is Orson Welles with Walter Houston. Great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to welcome back to the Campbell Playhouse a very distinguished actor and one of his favorite guests, Mr. Walter Houston. Thanks, Orson. You know, there's one thing that makes me particularly happy about tonight's broadcast, and uh, that is at the end of the story, you and I, Orson, did finally get together and shake hands. The last time we met, if you remember, you spent 30 years of your life savagely persecuting me. You went so far as to swim after me through the sewers in Paris. I did indeed, and I caught you, didn't I? <laughs> uh, Mr. Houston, ladies and gentlemen, is referring to our broadcast of Les Miserables last spring. Uh, that same evening, Walter, as we were saying goodbye, I remember you announced your intention of spending a few quiet weeks in the north of Scotland shooting grouse. <clears throat> well, I'm afraid those girls are still alive. The only shooting that I was able to do this summer was done right here in Hollywood, making Kipling's The Life That Failed. You know, Orson, there's another thing I like about tonight's broadcast. It gave me a chance to play with my favorite leading lady. Will the lady who played Isabel Amberson please step to the microphone? Yes, she is. Good evening, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Miss Nan Sunderland. My uh, uh, partiality for this lady is understandable. It would be anyway. But I think our audience would like to hear your reason, Walter, if they don't happen to know it. Well, I wooed Miss Sunderland throughout tonight's script, but uh, lost her at the end. In fact, this is not so in life. You know, in life, I wooed Miss Sunderland and won her. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Walter Houston. Who is hereby invited to come again to the Campbell Playhouse whenever she can. Thanks, Austin. I'd certainly like to. Congrats. Which invitation, man, also extends to your husband. Good night, Mr. and Mrs. Walter Houston. We'll look for both of you soon. <laughs> In tonight's Campbell Playhouse production of The Magnificent Ambersons, the role of Eugene Morgan was played by our guest of the evening, Mr. Walter Houston. Orson Welles was heard as George Amberson Minifer. Nan Sunderland played Isabel Amberson. Eric Burtis played the part of George Minifer as a young man. Ray Collins was Uncle Fred Amberson. The part of Lucy Morgan was played by Marion Burns. Archie Malik Smith by Everett Sloan. The Reverend Malik Smith by Richard Wilson. 
Lee Benaderet with Mrs. Foster. Music for the Campbell Playhouse, as always, was arranged and conducted by Bernard Herman. And now we wish to thank the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, sponsors of Good News of 1940, for their courtesy in permitting Walter Houston to appear with us tonight.